Good morning and welcome to our online gathering. My name is Gareth and I have the privilege of serving as an elder here at Reality. In the past two Sundays, John has guided us in our answering of two essential questions. Two essential questions that Mark is presenting to the readers of his gospel. Why did Jesus have to suffer? And why did Jesus have to die? These two questions find their answers in an understanding of the story of the Bible and the historical moment that Jesus enters into. John has been over the last couple of weeks consider, encouraging us to consider the categories that we have placed onto Jesus and to allow ourselves to have them disrupted as a way to really help us to, uh, to understand some of these bigger questions that Mark is presenting. So John has used the barbecue analogy. Um, he's used it as a way to show that there's a bigger and better story um, that God is continually drawing us towards in the same way that there's a, there was a bigger and better barbecue than he, he ever could have imagined. For myself, I like to think of it sort of this way. Um, it's, like, it, it's like cheering for the Canucks. It's like cheering for the Vancouver Canucks your entire life, not realizing that there is another team called the Toronto Maple Leafs. You see, there's a, there's a bigger story to be a part of that will require a con reconsideration of the category that you may have of, uh, of what a successful hockey team is. That's obviously beside the point, but the gospel writer Mark is inviting us today and to his contemporary audience to rightly understand who Jesus is. Last week, we learned that he had to die in order for us to be liberated from the kingdom of darkness and bring us into the presence of God as he establishes his presence in us, the new temple where he dwells. Last week, John challenged us again to, to untie our cultural baggage and chronological snobbery when we are confronted with the reality of Christ's suffering and death. I think that's what this text today is asking for us to do again. It's challenging us, it's going to challenge us to put ourselves into the context of the story and consider our perspective towards Jesus. The particular way this section of the text challenges us is through the use of irony. So in order for us to see this, it's, it's important that we reach a common understanding of irony. So I've done a little bit of background research for us. I googled ironic Vancouver, and this was the first thing that came up. It is a, a TransLink bus stuck in a snowbank with an advertisement on the back that reads, Feeling Stuck. The irony is that the bus, which is advertising for the exactly the situation it's in, is, is stuck. Here's another example. 
I found my very determined research. A 2011 Spelling Bee Championship awarded its first place champion with this misspelled trophy. Spelling, of all words, is spelled with three L's. Irony is when something is expected, but in reality, the opposite takes place. A bus advertising being stuck should not itself be stuck. A contest for spelling should not award its winner a trophy with a spelling mistake. We're faced with ironies all the time, and some of them are less humorous than these in day-to-day life. One irony that we face often in Vancouver is the irony that we live in uh, one of the most livable cities in the world, uh, yet we have a housing shortage and there is a homelessness crisis. It's ironic because it's not what is expected. The truth about ironies like these is that they confront us. They cause us to uh, examine our own outlook on situations and they cause us to ask how and why. And our passage today is full of irony that does just this. We're forced to ask how and why. And whether you'd call yourself a Christian this morning or not, everyone is confronted with these ironies. The trial, the exchange, the mockery, the road to the cross, they are all riddled with ironic instances. From our 3,000 foot, 2,000 year view, they may seem obvious, but it's clear through this passage that Mark is intentionally integrating these in order for us to be challenged by what we do with Jesus, to be put in a position to ask why, and to make a decision about the kingship of Jesus and the kingdom he is proclaiming. Tim Keller sums this up neatly. Writing about the ironies in Mark, Keller writes, Jesus is both the rest and the storm, both the victim and the wielder of the flaming sword. And you must reject him on the basis of both. Either you'll have to kill him or you'll have to crown him. The one thing you can't do is just say, what an interesting guy. So that's our challenge to us today, is to not just look at Jesus as just an interesting guy, but to understand his claim to kingship and the kingdom of God that he is proclaiming as at hand. Let's read the passage this morning. Mark 15 Uh, verses 1 to 32. As soon as it was morning, having held a meeting with the elders, scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin, the chief priests tied Jesus up, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, you say so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. 
Pilate questioned him again, aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer. And so Pilate was amazed. Now at the festival, Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. There was one man named Barabbas who was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them as was his custom. Pilate answered them, Do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was because of the envy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. Pilate asked them again, Then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? Again they shouted, Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led him away into the palace, that is, the governor's residence, and called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. Getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was the King of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! The one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. 
even those who were crucified with him taunted him. This is God's word. So this morning, or whenever you're listening to this or watching this, we will examine this passage by looking at how this story is driven by the ironies that we see and how through these ironies we're drawn into understanding Jesus. We'll look at three instances of irony. The first we'll look at is the trial, then the exchange, and finally the road to the cross. First the trial, the exchange, and the road to the cross. So first, the trial and the irony of kingly claims. Our uh, passage begins very early in the morning. Um, it was a long previous night, as you would know if you looked, read a little bit before. It was a long previous uh, evening and night for Jesus. He had cried out at Gethsemane to God, asking to have the cup of sacrifice taken from him. He's then betrayed by one of his own, Judas, and arrested and put before the council and the chief priests for a late night interrogation. They want him dead. And they're looking for evidence to condemn him. So the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? To which Jesus replies, invoking the words of the prophet Daniel, to whom the religious authorities would have been familiar, I am, he says, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. A blasphemer, they say. What further witness do we need? What further witness do they need? And they all condemned him, and at the crack of dawn, they led him to the Roman authorities to commission a state-sanctioned death sentence. Here on the trial is where we see the first of our ironies. And we see this through the claim to kingship. The Romans weren't at all concerned with local politics. Pilate was only in Jerusalem uh, at this time because it was during the Passover festival. And during Passover, the population of Jerusalem was eight to ten times larger than normal. He was there to help keep the peace. And he had no reason to meddle in uh, religious regulations. Jewish complaints, simply put, were far from Roman interest, unless, of course, the religious uh, became political. The chief priest, uh, along with the elders and scribes, they were smart people, and they knew this and thus influenced the presentation of Jesus to Pilate by saying that Jesus' crime was admission to being the king of the Jews. That word king at once elevates this trial before Pilate. You see, if Jesus claims to be a king... He is guilty of a crime against the sovereignty, the sovereign power of Rome. 
as, uh, as the commentator William Lane puts it, it must be considered highly ironical that having branded Jesus a blasphemer because he failed to correspond to the nationalistic messianic ideal, the council now wanted him condemned by the pagan tribunal on the plausible allegation that he made claims of a distinctly political character. Rome could not care less about the Jewish category for Messiah unless it confronted Rome's category for king. The irony here is amplified by Jesus' response to Pilate's first question. Are you the king of the Jews? He asks him. He asks him that because he's prompted to ask him that. Are you the king of the Jews? To which Jesus answers wonderfully. Beautifully responding to the irony of the claims, Jesus says, you have said so, you say so. This response can have a variety of meanings. Um, a lot of it's really based on the inflection or how we, the emphasis that Jesus is placing. But essentially what Jesus is saying is he's saying yes and no. He's saying, yes, I am the king of the Jews and a king over Rome, but he's also saying I am not because he is so much more than that. It's both um, a denial and an affirmation. By saying yes and no, it confronts the categories that the Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities are placing on him. Jesus is saying to the Jewish authorities, I am not the messianic ideal you are hoping for that will liberate you from the Roman authority. I am so much bigger than that. I am here to liberate you from the kingdom of darkness. To the Romans, Jesus is saying, I do not aspire to be a political leader. I appeal to a higher authority than the state. So how does this irony uh, confront you? How does it confront us? Remember, Mark is using these ironies intentionally to confront us. So what is your category for Jesus as king? Is your category for Jesus as king too small? Are you like, on one hand, the, the Jewish leaders? hoping that Jesus will address a specific need in your life? Or are you like the Roman authorities, only concerned about Jesus if he is laying claim to part of your kingdom? Look, we know the end of the story. We can all read about it. We know his claim to kingship is bigger than both the chief priests and Pilate are acknowledging, yet it is ironic if we know this to be true, yet don't live it out. So Mark uses the irony of Jesus' claim to kingship to confront us about the king that we make him to be.
Second point, the exchange. Mark presents the irony of the exchange of one revolutionary for another to confront our expectations of the kingdom of God. In verse 6, we read that at festivals such as this, it was customary for one prisoner to be released. Scholars debate why this was the case, but it's clear that this was customary and there was precedent for this. Roman trials typically took place in public. So it's also understandable how there would sort of, there already would be a large crowd uh, forming and approaching Pilate as we read in this section. In verse eight, we read that the crowd comes up to Pilate and asks him to do that thing. Do the thing, do the thing where you release a prisoner for us during the festival. Uh, Pilate's response seems to imply that he expected that the crowd want, would want to have Jesus released. So he answers them in this interesting question. He says, do you want me to uh, release for you the king of the Jews? Kind of like a hint, hint. Do, is it, this is who you want me to release? Um, but instead the crowd, the crowd is stirred up. It says, stirred up by the chief priests. And the crowd asks to have Barabbas released instead. The irony here is that Pilate has two Jesuses before him, both revolutionaries. Barabbas' full name was Jesus Barabbas. Furthermore, sort of his surname, Barabbas, Bar Abba, means son of Abba or son of the father. So there's two sons of the father on trial, two ways, two kingdoms that are being represented for Israel. There's Jesus Barabbas, um, who had been arrested for committing murder in an uprising against Rome. And then there's Jesus of Nazareth, who had been arrested for stating, I am. There's Jesus Barabbas, uh, who was a militant in pursuit of Israel's deliverance. Jesus of Nazareth is the Lamb led to the slaughter for the deliverance of all. Barabbas' MO was to take lives, whereas Jesus's was to lay down his life. Barabbas wanted to start a revolution by taking power. Jesus is about to start a revolution by losing his power. This irony con it confronts us. Regardless of whether you are a Christian or not listening to this, you must consider the irony of this situation and how contrary it is to what we would expect given the evidence before Pilate and before us. I think the way the irony confronts us in, is in the way we make sense of the crowd. It can be, it can be easy for us, I think, to, to caricature the crowd and I would really would warn us against doing that today. 
don't caricature the crowd. Don't be quick to disassociate ourselves with them. It's important for us to consider their actions as ironic as they may be to us. Mark's intention is for, for us to see ourselves in the crowd. The crowd is clearly influenced, okay? They're influenced by the perception of hope they see in Jesus. Sorry, the hope they see in Barabbas. Barabbas is a pawn, but he represents a kingdom that they think will lead to their deliverance. And they're influenced to this end by the chief priests, who further represents what the crowd desires, prominence in the present. Going back to that Tim Keller quote I stated from the start, we see this decision before us too, 2,000 years later. Do we crown Jesus or do we have him killed? What is holding me back from crowning him? Is it a fear of how he will upend my life? Or is it a fear of ridicule from those who have power and influence over me? It's easier to just have someone else released. But the truth is we will never be set free through the kingdom of darkness. We will always be enslaved. Just consider how the decision to see to release Barabbas plays out in Israel's story. A commentator on this text uh, put it well. They said, the crowd's choice, yes, it's ironic. Jesus, who had no interest in causing sedition or social upheaval, will be crucified between two brigands. Barabbas, a brigand guilty of murder, will go free because Jesus has taken his place on the cross intended for him. The crowd chooses the one who takes the lives of others to achieve his own selfish ends and condemns the one who gives his life for others in obedience to God. They want a king who will be comfortable with murder and mayhem, not one who refuses to resist evil with violence. It is a fatal preference. The violence of renegades like Barabbas will continue long after Jesus' time. The quote continues that it will continue to spiral until it eventually erupted in war uh, with Rome, against Rome. The outcome was inevitable. Rome destroys Jerusalem, its temple, and most of the inhabitants in a brutal siege. And the quote concludes here. The chief priests fear Jesus because he is a threat to their temple, their power base. In turn, they urge the release of ones whose violent ways will eventually rain down terror and destruction on their land. I think the question here is to whom do we listen to? Which kingdom do you put your hope in? 
Do you appeal to wealth and splendor as the crowd does, influenced by the chief priests, bending to their influence? Do you listen to the will of the Father, as we see Jesus doing, silently confident in his plan for your life and his lordship over you? Verse 14, And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, not even responding to that prompt. They shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Point three, the irony of the road to the cross. Each ironic instance of his mockery on the road to the cross challenges us again. It challenges our conception of who this King Jesus is. The first thing that happens after Pilate delivers Jesus to be crucified is that the soldiers, likely around 600 of them in a single cohort, dress him up like a king and mock him. They clothe him in a purple cloak. They put a crown of thorns on his head. This mockery reveals the the evil of their human hearts. Um, It reflects the human idea of what a king ought to be. These Roman soldiers, their experience of king is would have been a king who lords uh, authority over them. That would have been their experience. Instead, here we have a king who is silent. Even though he has authority over them, he is silent. Jesus does not fit the royal category He does not fit their royal category, yet they are dressing him up um, as if that is what he is claiming. Jesus had no army. He is not a king in the eyes of these soldiers. The irony, of course, is that he is. So the question confronts us again. Do we see him as king or do we dress him up like the soldiers do? in a way that fits our contemporary understanding of kingship. Furthermore, I think one of the most actually ironically interesting points that Mark is revealing to us is the contrast of Jesus's silence next to the barrage and uproar of his accusers from the crowd, the soldiers and the passer buyers. You see, throughout Jesus' ministry, as told in the Gospel of Mark, he is an active and instantly transforming person. He has this active and transforming presence. One commentator puts it this way. As he moves, Jesus, as he moves, he leaves behind him a trail of transformed scenes and changed situations. A fisherman no longer at their nets, sick people restored to health, critics confounded, a storm stilled, hunger assuaged, a dead girl raised to life. Jesus' presence is an active 
and instantly transforming presence. He is never the mere observer of the scene or the one who waits upon events, but always the transformer, the initiator. This changes in Mark's passion narrative. Jesus is no longer the one who initiates the action. He is the subject of others' actions. He is silent, answering nothing, taking nothing except the lashes from their scourges. We can learn of him how to endure suffering with peace and grace, trusting in God to deliver us. Amen. This silence invokes the famous words of Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he, not open, so he opened not his mouth. The irony here is that Jesus, the suffering servant, the one being called on to save himself, to come down from the cross, is the one who is submitting himself to the will of the Father instead of the will of the crowd. He doesn't save himself in order that others might be saved. So the question we're confronted with through the irony of the road to the cross is who do you say he is? Okay, so in closing, um, how do we apply this text? Speaking personally, I think this has been, it's been helpful for me and, and of course very challenging um, as I've meditated on this text. Uh, it's been challenging for me to realize who I make a king and which kingdom I serve. For me, is my category for Jesus as king too small? Am I like the chief priest in council, hoping that Jesus will address a specific need in my life? Or am I like the Roman authorities, concerned about Jesus only if he is laying claim to part of my kingdom? Which kingdom do I put my hope in? Which one do I serve? Do I appeal to influence or do I appeal to the will of the Father and his Lordship? Do I dress Jesus up and make him who I want him to be? Do I make him my perception of a king or do I submit myself to the truth of who he says he is? The reality is, I will always make him smaller in my life. We will always make him smaller in our life. We will always put our hope in a different kingdom. We will always make him out to be something that he is not. Unless we realize that we are the ones deserving of the punishment that he endured. We are the ones outside of the kingdom of God enslaved in the kingdom of darkness. Jesus is addressing the large context that we find ourselves in, the large cosmic problem of the kingdom of darkness. 
He is entering into it for our sake. That's part of the irony of the Christian faith. That while we were still sinners, making our home in the kingdom of darkness, undeserving of his kingship, undeserving of his kingdom, Christ died for us to be our king and to make a way for us to be part of his kingdom. And the sweet part of the Christian life is, is that it doesn't start and end there. God, who, who doesn't need us at all, desires to partner with us in this life, to participate in the spilling over of heaven into our world. His kingdom and his will be done. We see this um, beautifully um, illustrated again in our passage today uh, on the road to the cross where another irony stands out, another irony that Mark presents to us. Mark tells us that Jesus does not carry his own cross. The soldiers instead compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They compel him, uh, a passerby, to carry the cross of Jesus. This is an important point of irony uh, for Mark to point out. The fact that Jesus did not carry his cross. And it speaks to our life as, as followers of King Jesus. One commentator rightly puts it this way, and we'll conclude here. One of the profound ironies of Christianity is to be found in the fact that the one who was not able to carry his own cross is the one who enables us to carry ours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace for us. Lord, help us uh, to see you rightly as King Jesus. Lord, help us in our journey as we come to know you and as we come to see you as our King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.